0: Well, hello everybody, and welcome to another episode of the New Ground Life and Leadership Podcast. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Joel Harris. Joel works for Kinsugi Hope, which is a Christian mental health charity that works alongside and with local churches. That has a vision to set up well-being groups. Uh, and seeing them established across the country, places where people can experience safety and support and gain self-confidence and have a deeper understanding of God's love. Joel is the youth and students coordinator for them, so I'm looking forward to learning more about that role. Uh, He's also a YouTuber. Joel, I see you've produced over 150 videos, which is pretty impressive. Um, And he's a big Ipswich Town football fan. Well, nobody's perfect. Um, Welcome, Joel. Joel. Right. it was going well
1: thank you thank you for having me it was going well until perfect. <laughs>
0: um joel we connected a few months ago um we're looking forward to having you come and speak mm-hmm. at new day for the festival this summer um and when we spoke last time you shared with me some of what god's done in your life and how you came to faith and your journey through that and some of the challenges that you've overcome and stuff and i would love to just start this by start this conversation by just giving people a chance to get to know you and hear a bit about what God's done because I found it so encouraging. So you can take that question wherever you want and lead us into the weeds of your life.
1: Awesome, that sounds good. Well, so I've grown up in Ipswich, born and bred. Um, I'm a pastor's kid. My parents have led a church here in Ipswich for must be around 27 years. So they've Mm. been here for a good amount
0: of time. Roo You're deep. a pastor's kid. Sorry, Tim. That's um, kid, yeah. I mean, that, uh, my sympathies go out to you. <laughs> that,
1: that in itself is something, isn't it? I yeah, think...
0: well, I'd love to hear more about that. We'll come yeah. back to that. Carry on. Sorry. No, it's
1: it's fine. Well, on the pastors' kids, I I realised very early on when I speak to people have being a pastor's kid. Pastors' kids are either put into two categories. The first category is like the prodigal son, and they just run away from church. And they're like, I'm done. I don't want this. Or the other category is you just accept your fate and you're like, this is just my life and that's fine. <laughs> and for me, I think I've been blessed enough for always just to be an acceptance of it. I've I've loved being a pastor's kid. I think I've seen under the bonnet of church in a very unique way what's been super inspiring and helpful. So yeah, really do, do enjoy it. So I've grown up as a pastor's kid when I was four. We found out that I was severely dyslexic and I had a speech impediment. So going into primary school was an interesting thing for me. So I couldn't really speak that well. Like I remember in reception class, it was my birthday and I was in assembly in front of the whole school. And the teacher was like, oh, what did you get for your birthday? And I said something and nobody could understand me. So I remember my mum having to shout out from the back of the assembly hall what I would got because nobody could understand me. I remember in year six, getting zero out of 12 of my spelling test every single week. I was consistent in not being able to spell. I remember in year six, walking down from the year six classroom to the year two classroom to get my biff chipbooks. books. I never made it further than that. So I knew going into the summer of year six, so moving into high school, I knew a few things very much about me, is that I couldn't speak well, I couldn't write well, and I couldn't spell. So there's some fundamentals I knew. And I couldn't read. I thought I couldn't read. And this is something interesting for me, is whenever I read, I was always taught to read out loud. And I can't do that at all. But in the summer of Year it's going into year seven, I read Harry Potter. I know for some Christians, they'll think I'm suddenly going to hell for it. But um, I read Harry Potter and I just loved it. And I realized I can read, but it's the connection from my to my mouth what isn't working. So I'm an avid reader. I absolutely love reading. I just can't read out loud. So that was an interesting revelation for me. For first I realised, no, maybe it's dyslexia thing isn't all what's going on. There's some other stuff happening.
0: Mm, so is that still i still the pre- same to this day as well, you can't yeah. read out loud.
1: Can't read out loud, so when I preach, when I um, when I preach, I have notes. I don't have a full script because I couldn't read it. If that makes sense. So when I preach, when I write, so I love preaching. I feel called to preach. They ask me to read the Bible verse out in the front of church, and I'll crumble. That's I just can't do it. So, I can do, I know what I can do, know what I can't do. In primary school, I struggled with being bullied. So, I went into high school really knowing a few things about me and not probably having a great amount of self worth in all of that. So, in high school, 13, 12 year old Joel was like, I don't want to be seen. I don't want to be known because to be known and to be seen allows people to be mean. And I don't want that for my life. So, I went into high school trying not to be seen. But actually, stuff made me be seen simply due to my dyslexia. I had a laptop in my class when everyone else didn't. And because of that, I had to—I arrived to class five minutes late and left five minutes early to put my laptop away. Those sort of things are very hard not to be seen in that point of view. So I went through year seven and probably year eight feeling like a, a shell of my former self. I'm actually starting to lead a double life. So in church, I had a a great group of friends. It was always my happy place. It was always the place where I loved what was good for me. So in church, I was always good. I had great friends and I was very lively, very outgoing, very much wanting to be the center of attention. But in school, I was the opposite. And that started to affect me. And in year eight, I started to watch YouTube. I watched these YouTubers. And I realised a few things. I realised these YouTubers, everyone loves them. That's what I want. They have a lot of money. I would like that. And they don't go to school. I would really like that. So I thought, I know what, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do that, I'm going to become a YouTuber. So I started posting YouTube videos. And as I started posting YouTube videos about a year into it, I got invited to my first meet and greet. So meet and greet is where you'd meet your meet people who watch your videos. Some people would call them fans. They take photos of you and that sort of thing. And I was invited to do that, I think I must have been fourteen, fifteen probably, in Leicester Square.
0: Oh, well, so that um, happened quite quick, sorry. So you're yeah, so to probably, get into uh, YouTubing. I mean you're uh, not uh, like helping I the parents it. here who tell their kids it will never happen. Don't don't yeah. give yourself <laughs> There
1: was about a year between the two. Oh, started wow. doing it around a year i would say and what Could sort be, of
0: things were you making videos about
1: oh just stupid stuff anything and it's i guess for me right now looking back it's upsetting because at each part of my youtube videos i can tell you who i was trying to be because they were the ones who were popular at that point so it was very much my first few years very much trying to copy somebody else who's famous because that, that was my only way of understanding how I could be famous, if that makes sense. So from this meet and greet, I got put into a circuit of doing events, doing shows. We did a tour. We did these gigs where you'd turn up to a small venue, maybe a hundred, two hundred person venue, and we'd put on a show. I would MC, so I'd host. I would talk about that sort of stuff, and then we'd have people who were on the X Factor, up and coming singers. And they would sing, and then we'd do a meet and greet afterwards, and everyone would go home happy. And that's really what it was.
0: And you were about 15 at this time, were you?
1: 15, yeah, 15. Oh, wow. and, I did, and I did that for about four years of doing that. So I still had this utter divide in my life of school being quiet and shy, and then on the weekends jumping around on, square, on stage having people scream my name. Wow. And did the people at school know about your YouTubing? They Yeah, they did know. And I guess... That was the other thing i didn't help myself if i wanted to be known so people saw me i remember i remember a lot of times people know i remember being being asked to come into another classroom in form time and the teacher had put on my youtube videos and the whole, whole 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 this class 30 of my fellow students were watching it and so like that well, it wasn't always nice but i guess that's what you get when you do youtube that and did that
0: increase your social standing at school no i don't think
1: so it may have i don't think so i think and i I don't think that was anything to do with my fellow students i think that was more to do with me compartmentalizing i think what are going in primary school and going actually school wasn't the place for me i'm not sure that was to do with other people not accepting me but me me not being one me probably not wanting to be accepted I couldn't get past oh this has not been a good place for me before so I'm not sure how it can be a good place for me now so you think sense. you
0: kind of kept people at arm's length at school yeah definitely. because you were nervous of being rejected yeah
1: yeah definitely so I did so I did that and that was really fun and and through that time I my faith got bigger I grew more my faith grew more of what what do I want to do in my life what do I want to be all that sort of stuff I my dyslexia was still there. I still really struggled with that. But I started to learn that actually it was maybe not always a bad thing. I was recalling recently, I was in DT, DT class in year, must have been eight or nine. And we had this proper rough DT teacher, this lady who was just hilarious and just proper rough, proper, just say it as it is type of person. And she was like, you've got to write this essay. And I went up to the teacher and I said, I'm going to need a bit of extra time, I'm dyslexic. And I was quite embarrassed and like ashamed of it. And she just punched me in the arm. I went, you lucky sod. You are so lucky that you're dyslexic. Because you think now completely differently to everyone else in this room. And you'll be way more creative than anyone else in this room because of it. And it was the first time I'd ever told a teacher and they hadn't looked at me with sympathy but looked at me with jealousy and that was a big shift for me going oh actually there is creative creativity so all my all my filming I learned how to edit I learned how to film by myself on YouTube just doing all this stuff so we did all these meet and greets we did we did all these things and it was going well i had brands sending me clothes I had everything looked great but probably at the age of 18 my whole identity had started to form on social media. So I was happy. So my whole identity started to form on social media. So I was happy if I got 2,000 likes one week. But I'd be so sad if I got 1,000 likes the week after. And my whole identity was like that I was up, down, up, down, up, down. And in, as I was 18, I think for a season the likes started not to come as much. And I really struggled with that. And I got really low. I kind of burnt out from all of this social media stuff. I kind of burnt out from everything that had happened. And in that burnout place, I felt God go, Joel, who are you doing this for? These past four years, you've built your own name. You've built your own platform. Where where am I in this? I told my Christian friends I was doing this for God. And I, I wasn't, if I'm being honest. I was doing it for my own affirmation. And in that place, I started to go, Okay, maybe I need to change my social media. Maybe I need to change what I do to something else. So after a break, I started to release Christian content. Naively, I thought, you know what? I'm going to get a million followers straight away. Because I'm doing it for God, then it must be good. I lost 70% of my audience in the first year doing it. And that was a whole process in itself going, where's your acceptance from Joel? Where's your identity from Joel? So that was really what I was doing. And then I left school. I left sixth form. um, And I interned with two different organisations. One was a charity called Make Jesus Known, helping their social media stuff. And the other charity was Kintsugi Hope. So I interned Patrick and I followed him about and all the stuff Consiga was doing at that point, Consiga was a year old, a year and a half old. And I joined and they were kind of like, we have these well-being groups. These wellbeing groups are 12 weeks long. They're kind of like Weight Watchers or Alcohol Anonymous, but for your mental health. What would it look like to do this for young people? So I started to readjust some of the material. And we readjust material from 12 weeks to 6 weeks. And we released it. And since then, I've been now at Kansugi for three and a half years. And the intern that basically never left. I just was like, oh, you're stuck with me. And we now have this material, what, six weeks long, what churches, schools, youth, group, youth groups partner with us to run. And we've seen 1,500 young people go through these wellbeing groups, two-thirds of them being in schools. We've seen schools make this part of their curriculum We've seen people come into these groups who were suicidal and left with a friend and life just a little bit easier. One of my favorite things for me is we have a high we have evaluation form what every young person does each um after their session. And one young person wrote the highlight of their group was the fact that they found a voice. And that for us was really. And for me is really what it's all about, we're trying to allow young people to find a voice. So I went from doing the social media stuff and doing that, now working for Kintsugi full-time, writing this material. And the most interesting thing for me, and the thing what I am so blown away by, and just so grateful for God, is a majority of my job is to preach, is to speak, and is to write. I went into primary, I went into high school, now, I couldn't speak well, I couldn't write well, I couldn't talk. And now I do that. And I want to make this clear. I am not healed by dyslexia. I'm not healed whatsoever. I still have a speech impediment, and over the past year and a half, it has got worse. But actually, that's okay. There's this whole thing, what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, I had a thorn in my flesh, and three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said, No, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Actually, I believe that when I go on stage and when I speak, when I do this stuff, if God doesn't show up, it is pointless. I know I can't do this without God moving in me because I can't. I can't do it. I'm dyslexic, I can't speak. But actually God shows up and God works through my brokenness. And I think actually that story is way more powerful than me going, hey, I'm healed from dyslexia and now I do this stuff. It's going, no, every day this is a faith journey. Every day there's a journey going, God, let's do this. Let me work in my brokenness. And I guess I'm more aware now than I ever ever have been is the best way to show Jesus to your non-Christian friends is to completely show your brokenness and show how God uses even that for his glory.
0: Wow. Thank you, Joel. That was very moving. And there is lots in everything you've just shared that I'd love to pick up on. i tell you where my, my brain goes, first of all, is, uh, and it's a, it's just a book I'm reading at the moment, Um Talks about the fact that, for the past you know, dec- few decades or so, um, the kind of the the way of finding our identity in the modern West has been what sociologists call expressive individualism. This idea that um, I will know who I am by how I express that my inner self in the world. It's not not unfamiliar to us, but the, this book's making the case that actually in recent years we've seen a shift away from expressive individualism towards what some sociologists call performative individualism that is my identity is expressed in my performance in the world Um, And the rise in social media has kind of exacerbated this, but it's this sense of, I will know that I'm valuable, I'll know that I'm worthwhile when people are giving me attention, when I am performing well, and therefore the thing we fear most of all is failure and of being overlooked and ignored. And so I think a lot of what you've been talking about there kind of has been reminding me of that, that this is a battle to gain people's attention, but then when we've got it to realise actually that doesn't satisfy that doesn't make me feel secure and loved and seen and known and there's something you said about when you first attended secondary school that i found really quite interesting Um, you wanted to be known by people but you were scared of being known by people because to be known and then be rejected is terrifying and so it's much easier to hold people at arm's length and perhaps to to seek out an audience in the anonymous space of the internet, because at least we can say they're rejecting an avatar, a, a digital version of us. Uh, what are some of your reflections on, on that performative individualism and how you see that playing out in your own heart or the, the lives mm. of people around you?
1: I think, it's, I think it's so true. I think social media is a, a massive part of that. I, I guess... In my own story, how I used to always explain what social media was to people who don't do social media influencing is going imagine you went into your job and you got paid not by your not by what degree you had, not by the work you did, not by how long you did your work or how good your work was but you got paid by what you, by how much your colleagues like you. That's what social media influence is. And that's why it can so easily play on your identity. Because it's utterly about people's view of you. And you can measure that so deeply with analytics, likes, comments, followers, shares. You can measure it all. And that's like a major version of it. But we have that in, in, in our whole ecosystem, don't we? In the West, and especially in England. Like, if we think of schooling you're measured on your success, you're measured on your performance, you have stats, you have you have your report of, this is what we think we're going to get, this is what we think of them. I, I remember like my report, you have a big thing all about your um, grades you're going to get, and a little thing of the teacher was like, oh, this is Joe, this is we really like him, he's really lovely, or he's been naughty in class, and you have a little bit about the person, you have so much about the performance. And actually we're built to be wired for performance, aren't we? School builds us to go, your performance is what matters, your grades is what matters. And as someone who's dyslexic, I've come to realise I sometimes thought I was stupid and dumb. And that's not because I am stupid and dumb, but because of the way the schooling system's programmed isn't for somebody like me. So actually, I was going to fail in that, not because of anything of me, but just because it's not built for people who are different, people who learn differently. So I think performance is massive. I think we're seeing it a lot with young people and people want to perform on social media. Young people want to perform in front of their friends and people want to perform in front of their parents. If you're a child and you've grown up and the only time you've ever got affirmation from your parents is if you did something well or if you got a good grade or if you performed or if you did something good, you're wiring into your children's brain the only way to get affirmation is through performance. So I think there's a massive culture right now of actually having to perform. And that's due to many things. And I guess the way you get out of that, the way you get out of trying to live in a performance-based world is to shift your identity on something that doesn't matter about your performance. And that for me is my faith. That for me is God. It's going, no matter what I do, No matter if I never preached ever again, God's view and love for me wouldn't change. No matter if I stopped working right now, no matter if I stopped doing everything I did, no matter if all I did for the rest of my life was sit in this room, God's view and love for me wouldn't change. That's not performance-based. That's love-based.
0: Yeah, and it's the it's a it's a love-based on the performance of our older brother Jesus, isn't it? Yeah. Who has done what we could never have done? It strikes me that we have this kind of this double-headed beast, if you like. That, like you said, at school we're we're appraised and critiqued for our p- competency, but on social media, and what you're saying is often, I think, you know, socially that's increasingly the case. We're appraised on our likability. And so we've got to be both competent and really lovely people and liked by lots of people at the same time which actually means
1: exhausted
0: yeah we're exhausted anxious we're trying to fight on two fronts and those two things don't always go together because sometimes the right thing to do is very very unpopular and we're finding that particularly as christians who are holding on to an ancient tradition who believe uh the wisdom and teachings of jesus passed down that's not culturally bound it's timeless and to hold on to that and to prize that in a generation that says just say nice things just say things that make you popular so i think this is something that we can Certainly you all relate to the anxiety, the stress and the strain that that produces. And it strikes me Jesus's antidote is is therefore go into secret and pray to your father who's hidden. You know, it's a retreat from because it's a it's a so I'm a millennial. So I'm a you know, I got this. I'm a middle child as well. So performance and wanting to be noticed is in me as well. But I think your generation, because of the Internet, has just taken those seeds that were in me in my generation and has just you know produced this inferno of craving and attention seeking and approval ratings all the time which is just exhausting and tiring for people and i think when you then come to christ you're right you get handed an identity that says you're loved but you've still got this battle between trying to be honest and authentic with god that isn't based on performance but everything you know about how to be in the world is about performance so how have you i mean i'm finding my way to a question here um how have you found in then you said taking your faith more seriously and being a disciple of jesus how have you found the the conflict between this thing of i need to perform well and then no actually i'm i'm loved and i just need to be honest and real with god and that isn't performance-related pay and affection. Is there? Have you found there to be a dissonance with some of that? Yeah, it's a,
1: it's a, massive, it's a massive shift. It's, it's, it's really hard. Because for me, in terms of performance and knowing I'm loved, there's a couple of things. One, I want to do the best job I can at anything I do. The Bible says, do everything like you're doing it for the Lord. Yeah, I, I want... To have an excellency, excellency, there we go, our excellency of my work and of what I do. But also, I don't want that excellency to turn to the perfectionism and perfection, what is unachievable. So there's that shift, and there's a, there's a massive shift between perfectionism and biblical excellency. Perfectionism is unreachable, unattainable, I will never get there. You can have an excellent excellency around you, what isn't perfection. So, actually, I want to seek excellency, what is countercultural, what is different to what the world is saying, but it's still a standard and a level of, I want to do this at the best of my abilities, but I'm aware even that will not achieve perfection. So, it's going, good, I want to do this for you, I'm going to do this well, I'm going to do this right. But even, even I know I'm going to fall short and that's okay because you still love me and you still go for me. It's working out of a place of acceptance, not working to be in the place of acceptance. And that's the shift. And it's a massive shift and it's really hard. And I think even when you work in church work or in Christian ministry, it's still really hard because it's still like, I want to be good. It's, it's hard for me if you go on stage. You want those people to like you. Like, as a very human, natural response going, I want you to like me. But it's being able to go, actually, even if you don't, even if it doesn't matter, God still loves me, and that's what matters. And I guess I haven't got an answer for it, because it's something I'm still trying to work out. I'm not sure this side of heaven I'll ever get to that beautiful spot where I am full really know just how much I'm loved and actually no matter what happens that's okay I think it's always something I've got to I've got to catch myself up on it's always something I've got to watch out for going Joel in what way are you doing this I was reading today and, and about the story of David and I, I'm going for the story of David at the moment and there's a point where David just gets crowned for all of Israel he becomes the king and it's it's the the verses along these lines, so don't quote me because I've not got Bible out, a Bible right in front of it it's along the lines of going. David knew the Lord had blessed him and exalted him for the per- for the for the purpose and for the benefit of God's people. David's leadership David's promotion to being king was not for his own sake was not for his own thing was not for anything he, but for his own gain or for his own purpose, the reason of his promotion was for the people he was leading. And actually, for me, it's looking at if if you're in a place of leadership, it's readjusting, you're, you're going, this leadership is not for me. The reason I'm here is not for me. The reason I'm doing this stuff is not for me. It's for the people that you are leading. And I guess when you work out of a performance-based place, it's easy for you to think the reason I'm promoted, the reason I'm leading, the reason I'm doing this stuff is for my own benefit. It's shifted it going actually, all of this stuff is for the benefit of somebody else. I think is an easier way to take yourself out of this performance based narrative.
0: Yeah, that's really good, Joel. Really wise, and and I think so. My brain's gone in different directions of where we could take the conversation because, I, on the one hand, I think um, I I think everybody. Who preaches has the experience of, has had the experience of feeling as though you're boring people <laughs> or people aren't quite with you. At least I no. hope everyone has. Maybe it's just, <laughs> but it's that horrible moment when you, when you step off the platform or you sit back down in your seat and you just think, oh, that was bad. <laughs> or, yeah. And what often I've, I've realized, what I mean is, I didn't get good feelings from people while I was speaking. not to say what i was saying was good or bad but i've learned in those moments i have to i have to say to the lord it was for you i'm serving Mm. them and i'm trying to honor you it's not about Mm. the good feelings that i get from doing this which is really important the other thing that really comes to me as you're talking is is there does you're very wise that's not to you know i'm not i'm not trying to flatter you i think when your answer is very humble very wise and it, I wonder if part of where that humility and wisdoms come from is some of the physical challenges, like you said, the dyslexia and speech impediments that you've had to overcome, reaching a point of learning to boast in your weakness, which feels so counterintuitive and so countercultural as well. Um, I'd love to, I'd love to hear more about that because, you know, you, what you said was God hasn't healed me of this, and actually, I think that that in many respects is is better. Or you've you've come, you've made your peace with that and realized actually. It's, in not healing me this is actually really good because it means that i'm dependent on god all the more um so talk to me a bit about your journey then because obviously that's that's like the end of your no doubt the end of many years of wrestling with this condition probably seeking god for healing on numerous occasions doing whatever you can to overcome it and then eventually i suppose not just making your peace with it but finding joy in it because it brings glory to god and it's good for you and others so if you wouldn't mind share with us some of your just your journey to acceptance and then celebration of this yeah of course
1: i guess for me it's going. i always never wanted to be dyslexic i was never i was never keen about i knew this sort of stuff and like my earliest memory is having a Speech therapists around our house helping me try and do speech. Like, I'd put lolly in my mouth and go red lolly, yellow lolly, and I hated it. Like, I couldn't do it. And I remember all through prime school, I was taken out on one-on-ones to strengthen my speech. So, I never, never liked it. I guess how I've come to acceptance and how I've come to understanding is probably two major things. Is one, going... As I started to preach, as I started to do that stuff, I realized this is the thing I do what makes God smile. And that's not to say God doesn't smile the rest of my life. That's not to say anything like that, but it's going, this is the main thing I've done where I go, I was built for this. I was designed for this. And that's not, I'm. That's not me trying to go, hey, I'm amazing, this is great. But it's me going, there's loads of stuff I'm not good at. But when I do this, I know for some reason, somehow my body's programmed to do this, and this feels in holy and this feels right. And there will be stuff for each of us that is their thing, what they can do. And that doesn't necessarily have to be something what is Christian. In demonstration, like preaching, that can be architecture, that can be building, that can be anything. It's a thing for me where I go, ah, this is what I was meant to do. So I have this understanding that I was meant to do this thing, but also understanding that I am totally broken in the thing that I'm meant to do. And then working for Kintsugi and just processing. Actually, what is the art of Kintsugi? So, Kintsugi, if you don't know, is a Japanese art form for mending broken crockery. In the UK, we have a pot, we break it, we will super glue it back together and hide the cracks. In Japan, they put gold powder in the glue and they make a feature of the cracks. Arguably, that pot is more beautiful, it is definitely more unique. And actually, it's me going, that is so true. That is so right. That in your brokenness, you don't have to hide it. You don't have to hide your scars. Actually, your brokenness makes you more unique. Brokenness makes you more beautiful. And I think, going back to Corinthians, this verse, what Paul says about the um thorn in the flesh, but then earlier on in Corinthians, he talks about how, how we have treasure in these jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. These jars of clay, he's speaking about us, and the jars of clay he was speaking about in the time were these very cheap things they're very easily broken they'd get chipped they'd have holes in them everyone had them who was going hey you guys are like those jars very normal very fragile and very broken but the treasure is in them and actually those holes those brokenness allow the treasure to tre- treasure to shine through so when I started to understand both those things probably on a separate level, I started to simply make the connection and go, wow, actually, my brokenness is also the thing I'm built to do. And probably I'm more qualified to do it now because I'm broken in it. If I was just someone who wasn't dyslexic, didn't have a speech impediment, preaching, it'd be so easy to think this is me. This is on me. I'm sick of this i don't need god here this is good i can do this but actually my brokenness humbles those thoughts i'm so thankful for that so i'm aware that if i wasn't broken i probably would be very cocky about it all <laughs>
0: and this seems to be the um i mean part another part of the answer to the the culture of performance as well isn't it is is realizing I'm not good at performing because I can't do this. But wow, God is using this for his good anyway. And so it frees you from the, the yeah, the, the carousel of I must be strong. I must keep going. Oh, get back up again. Keep going. Get back up again. Fight. I I can do this by myself. It frees you from all of that because it says, I can't do it in the first place. And it's so much more relatable. And it's, I, I, I've been saying...
1: For a while, I, talk, I do this preach on this 2 Corinthians verse and doing this whole thing about how do you evangelise to young people when they're struggling with their mental health? How do you share Jesus to a generation that's struggling with their mental health? And for me, the answer I get is to show your brokenness. Nobody relates to perfection. And actually, if you're a young person, you're looking at a youth worker, if your youth worker never shares their brokenness, It's not a long shot where you'd think those young people think a few things. One, they think, to be a Christian, to be a youth worker, I need to be perfect and read my Bible every day. Two, my brokenness or my sin, and brokenness and sin are two separate things. I don't want to get those mixed. My brokenness disqualifies me from being in a relationship with Jesus. Because if your leaders don't demonstrate and share their brokenness, it's easy to think, I need to be perfect to do that. And the youth leaders don't mean that. The youth leaders are like, I'm so broken, I'm just embarrassed to share with my young people my brokenness. And I've realised, actually, people relate to brokenness ten times more than they relate to your perfection. And this was cemented in me in the Starbucks logo story. So Starbucks, their logo is this mermaid. It's one of the most famous logos, most recognisable logos on the planet. The first edition of that logo, the Starbucks, uh, it didn't work. So they got this first edition of the logo. It was the mermaid and it was great. They gave it to the Starbucks team. And the marketing team was like, this isn't good. I can't relate to this whatsoever. They realised nobody could relate to it because it was perfect. So they added... A flaw to their logo to allow it to be more relatable. If you look at the Starbucks logo, one eyebrow is longer than the other. There's a flaw to it. The marketing team at Starbucks knew if they want people to relate to their brand, they needed to make it not perfect. If you want people to relate to your faith, if you want people to see Jesus in your life, then you need to stop trying to pretend to be perfect Mm. we as christians we're the first people to pretend to be perfect yeah i'm fine god is good life is good all those things actually we as christians should be the first ones to be open and to be honest about our brokenness because our brokenness is what demonstrates jesus working in our life
0: yeah that's really good i think sometimes we feel the pressure that I'm representing Jesus I've got to sell Jesus really well I've got to have a really good life to I feel like we feel like we feel as though we're on the back foot often before yeah. we've even started and so we think let me make a strong case for Christ let me show you that it's intellectually watertight it's experientially entirely satisfying that all, it cleans up being a disciple of Jesus cleans away all of your mess Cause, and we think, you know, that's doing a good thing. Then we, real, we forget that the one we're representing was not a pretty picture. He was a bloody mess that people turned yes. their faces away, that people associated with being the scum of the earth and mocked and humiliated his followers because of who he was and how he died. It was so shameful. And so we have this inbuilt kind of tension in our faith if we're able to see it. And yet, you know, what you're saying just seems to be so resonant and necessary because... One of the things I'm noticing from talking to people is, and it breaks my heart, is just how how legalistic and self-righteous all salvation is outside of Christ. And you know, we're in a society that's as religious as ever. I was talking to some friends over the weekend who inadvertently, they didn't know they were doing this, but inadvertently they were trying to display their virtue as far as the environment comes to each other. Back and forth, back and forth it went. And I realized there's just no grace. There's no salvation here. It's entirely effort. And you see this in young people, whether it's the performance culture. I've got to be—I've got to work hard. I've got to be beautiful. I've got to be strong. My mental health's got to be tip top. I've got to get all these grades. And, and it's just self-righteousness, self-justification. Without Christ, And without christ it's just it's desperately desperately sad and it should break our hearts and the way that we can help that perhaps is as you said lean deeper into what christianity and what being a disciple of jesus is really all about
1: Mm. no it, 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 it really is it's one us leaning into there's a relief and there's a restfulness in knowing you're broken and knowing that's still okay but then If you look outwardly on building the church, building the building, sharing Jesus is going, everyone else in this world knows they're broken. Like you know you're broken. What people are looking for is an answer to their brokenness. And normally, what Christians present is a be perfect and be like us. That's not attractive. That's not what people want. People are looking. Or an answer. There's something in our soul that goes, This can't be it all, this can't just be it. There must be something else to make sense of all of this. And we probably need to do a better job of going, yes, this isn't all it, this is broken, but through Jesus, this is good. That is the answer to the problem. But sometimes we jump ahead towards Jesus and we forget to put in the context of actually we are broken. And we still have Jesus.
0: Mm, that's really good. And I like you make the you made the distinction earlier about boasting in our brokenness, brokenness, not boasting in our sin. And that's an important distinction to make, isn't it? We're not like, hey, I, you know, I watch porn as much as the next person or I get drunk as much as the next person. Hey, <laughs> it's fine. We're all broken. It's actually going, no, I, I, I really struggle with these internal desires Towards objectifying other people, or to meeting needs for insecure needs of insecurity in myself, and I, I turn to unhealthy sources as much as the next person. But I'm trying. That's, I think, the difference between you know reveling in sin and boasting in brokenness, isn't it? And and brokenness is is
1: is different. And this is where there's been a lot of pain, previously in the church towards mental health. So, an anxiety disorder, isn't due to a lack of faith. Anxiety disorder isn't a sin, okay? It's a brokenness in this world like cancer is, like illnesses. And actually, if you want to go a bit more, cancer and all these brokenness is a result of the first sin, of the fallenness of this world, but isn't a result of a personal sin of the person who has it, okay? So it's... Real line of those things, because we as a church can sometimes go, somebody struggling with something like poor mental health going, is there a sin in your life because of this? No, it's a brokenness in this world. And it's easy for no one would ever go to someone who has cancer. Hey, the reason you have cancer is because you've sinned in your life. You wouldn't, would you? Like, it's, it's no, this is just a rubbish part of being in a fallen world and a fallen humanity. But often we might go to someone who struggles with an anxiety disorder. Is there a sin in your life? No. We are in a broken world and that is a rubbish part of society. So I'm aware my dyslexia is a brokenness. I'm aware of that. I'm aware... I am broken and my dyslexicness is a brokenness that isn't caused by a sin that I've done or by a sin that my parents have done. And that's the separation what I think we need to be more clear on because if we don't be clear on the separation between brokenness and sin, it can lead to shame and guilt building up towards people who are trying to work out what's going on.
0: Mm, I think I completely agree. Here's a a slight uh, kind of bit of gristle in the machine, if you like. Because Jesus says, do not worry about tomorrow. And because the Apostle Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. I can understand how individuals who suffer from an anxiety disorder live with and wrestle with a sense of shame like i'm not i'm not i'm not a very good christian i'm letting god down similar to perhaps and this this may be interesting to hear your comment because as someone who's dyslexic for whom books reading out loud doesn't come easily in the church that's a it's a book-based faith you know you no doubt will have grown up in church environments feeling a level of disconnection and even shame about that so maybe there's a, a correlation between those two experiences that i'd love to hear your reflection on so the verses that we're looking at is do not be anxious in Philippians and Jesus
1: saying do not worry. These two verses, the Greek word for them both, the worry and the anxious, is meruminio, is the Greek word. And that is that by definition is to be fretful, to be worried, or to be anxious would be one of the definitions for it. That word is used a few times in the New Testament. And it is always used in relation to materialistic things. So the Jesus verse, do not worry about tomorrow. Jesus, just before that, is talking about how you can't have two masters. You can only have a master of God or a master of money. One person can't have two masters. Jesus is talking about actually there's materialistic things in this world what you can't let control your life. Jesus there is going, do you not worry about the clothes you're going to have. Do you not worry about the food on your table. Do you not worry about what's going to come tomorrow. It then goes, Jesus then goes, because tomorrow has enough worries of its own. Jesus isn't saying, don't worry. Jesus isn't saying, don't be anxious. He's saying there's a few things clothing, food, stuff. What is a worry, but actually each day has enough troubles of its own. Don't get caught up in the money. That's what Jesus is talking about. Don't get caught up in having the master of money. There is worries in today. Jesus, another time, goes, actually, in this world, you will find trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So we see in this verse, but do not worry, and Jesus going, he's not saying don't worry as a blanket statement. He's acknowledging there will be trouble. He's acknowledging there will be worries. But he's going, there's a few things where we need to be careful. And then in the Philippians verses, do not be anxious about anything, but in prayer and petition, give your thanksgiving to God. Anxious, once again, it's it's that Merino word. It's talking about do not be worried about what you'll eat, what you'll sleep or what you'll do. But if you are in everything, with prayer and petition, give it to God. Paul is saying, don't worry about those things, but if you are worrying, give it to God. And the reason we know he's saying that is because in other books, Paul speaks about how he is anxious for people, how he is worried about what's going on. Paul is acknowledging there is worry in the world, but he's saying in these things, in these materialistic things, let's give these to God. Let's not worry about Let's not Let's not get caught up in the materialistic side of this world. But when you look at those verses, From a very flat point of view it can be so easy to be pulled out of context and so often they've been pulled out of context and they've caused pain because they've not been set in their proper place so it's interesting because people go don't jesus says don't be anxious or jesus says don't have anxiety or don't worry about stuff the garden of Gethsemane, where jesus was about to get crucified Luke says Jesus sweated blood. That is a condition where somebody is so anxious and so, and some it's a condition where if you're being led to death, if death is going to happen, or if you're in an increased level of anxious worry, there's a condition where you sweat blood, and that's your That's your body reacting to your anxiety. Luke is saying Jesus was worried then, and of course he was. He was about to be led to the crucifix, wasn't he? He was worried. So when we look at the Bible in a whole, we see Jesus and Paul aren't condemning people with anxiety. They aren't condemning people who are struggling with an anxiety condition. What they're saying is, as humans, we can get caught up in materialistic things. Let's make sure we put them in a proper place because you can't have two masters. Mm
0: so good Joel. really helpful and liberating for people and it strikes me as well isn't it? it's so important isn't it like as we were saying with some other things a while ago that we we must think deeper about these things we can't just we can't just settle for a skimming off of the surface because that's always where you're going to encounter kind of thoughts and obstacles to your understanding and often people just kind of go well that's that's it then and they kind of move on and think i'm just going to live with guilt or live with shame live with whatever whereas actually when properly understood when engaging with if we take the word of god seriously as oracles from the living god we ought to Take the time to read it slowly and within its context. You wouldn't do that with any TV show. Just turn on a film halfway through and be like, "Oh, great! I guess the goodies die." Then you're like, "No, you have to watch the whole thing, um, to understand it."
1: Oh, a hundred percent. If you, if, if I think of, let's think, let's take Lord of the Rings. If you switch Lord of the Rings on the point where Gandalf falls down the pit, you think he's dead. You turn that off. That's the movie. Well, actually, that's not what. It's not what goes on. And often with the Bible, we can pluck these verses out. There's loads of verses, isn't it, um, what are called like fr- fridge, fridge magnet verses, where we chuck them up. And they don't always mean like Jeremiah 29, 9, 11, for I've got plans to prosper not to harm you. In the context, that verse is talking <laughs> about a people group that are about to go into slavery. He's talking not about individual, but people who are going, hey, you're gonna go into slavery and for a while it's gonna be awful. And some of you will die there. Some of you will not get out of slavery. But you as a people group, you as a land, I promise that there will be plans to prosper to prosper you, not to harm you. What people what people don't see is the hey, there's gonna be a generation of people in slavery and who are gonna die in that. That's a less nice fridge magnet verse. But actually, that's a more biblical verse.
0: It's really good, Joel, really good. Um, I just want to come on to something, and maybe this will be a nice little segue into the work of Kintsugi and exactly what you do. So you're absolutely right. Anxiety, cancer, it's not something that um, is necessarily because we've done something wrong or uh, isn't just handed down to us because our parents screwed up entirely right. There's also a slight caveat to that, I guess, in that the environments and conditions within we within which we live do provide the the kind of unique cultural melting pot for some of our particular societal ills and difficulties that we struggle with. so who knows maybe in decades to come we'll understand why it is that we've seen such a spike in Cancer rates, maybe it's something to do with the microplastics or our diets, or who knows. But we understand we're not we're not living in a vacuum. We're always living in an environment that shapes things. And when it comes to mental health disorders, anxiety disorders, and things, I just want to quote some some statistics, some things from um, stuff that you've written on or talked about. So there's been a thirty nine percent increase in a year of referrals for NHS mental health treatment for under 18s. That's significant. Um, 46% more 15 to 19-year-olds committed suicide in 2015 than in 2007. Um, We've seen spikes in the number of under 18s or 18-year-olds who say that they have psychological disorder. There's been a decline in the number of teenagers who report to saying that they are very happy, quote, with their lives. And a lot of this, you know, stats and things have, have correlated this to the invention of social media and particularly snapchat and instagram and stuff like that but what it is all pointing to is that there are there is a social environment that does seem to exacerbate or make worse the problems that we all struggle with or allow certain conditions for these potential problems to to grow in and thrive in so i'd love to hear your your comments on some of that and then also how you and kintsugi hope what you're doing to try to change the environment within which people are swimming to help them better look after their mental health
1: yeah so we're seeing we are see we've seen a massive spike in poor mental health especially within young people and social media is a big part of that i believe it's john mark Comer who writes about how we were all meant to be built in villages and your brain had have the capacity of knowing 100 people around that now you get a thousand likes on in Instagram. Our brains are at major capacity on all what's going on. And social media has increased this level of FOMO, fear of missing out, and increased comparison. It's so easy for me to compare my life in bed, not doing anything, nine to five job, to somebody who's traveling around the world on social media. Yeah. And we're seeing this this increase in comparison, and an increase in comparison, an increase in the in the FOMO, the fear of missing out. I think can lead to poor poor well-being, and emotional well-being. And there's two two separate things here. There's you have mental health within in the illness, and you have poor well-being. A lot of us through COVID will have felt the impact of negative well-being in our lives. Some of us would have felt, felt the impact of mental illness. Those are separate things. And um, the mental health continuum is a really helpful model for you guys to look at to look at how do we place people in the continuum. That's really, really helpful. So, but back to the question I think there's been an increase in all this stuff massively due to social media, to, due to comparison. And if you want to go even more recently, I think of people right now, young people right now, in the past three years they've had COVID what utterly through them. I'm not sure we fully realise how much COVID has thrown young people. We took them out of, out of school for a year. That destroyed people's rhythms. Rhythms is a known helper for wellbeing. We, they lost friendships, they lost all what's going on. We then saw the murder, the unjust murder of George Floyd. It was a 16-year-old who created a petition for his police officers to be to be um, arrested, what got 19 million signs. It was young people who took the streets of this country to go, this is not right, and we need to stand up for justice. We then saw war in Ukraine. Young people saw that, not from newspaper articles, but from videos of people being blown up on TikTok. We saw that of people their own age having to hide in bunkers, having to hide in basements for fear of their lives. They then saw the Queen dying and for some young people that affected them, others young people it didn't. But what the Queen dying represented was actually there is people old age and everyone has people who are of old, old age and suddenly you go, Oh, if the Queen can die, then so can my grandma, so could my granddad. We now have the cost of living crisis what's having a humongous effect on young people because they're seeing the effect it is having on their parents and that is being diluted into them. Not to mention we've had lack of leadership in the government over the past few years. We've had governments saying rules and then in some sense breaking them and that's not me saying anything apart from the young people are seeing a leadership what not authentic. We've seen police officers in the, in the UK take and rape women who are police officers, people in authority. All of these things are saying to our young people, nothing is certain and there isn't much hope. And actually that can is the breeding ground for increasing negative well-being. Because when you lack hope and you struggle to know what's going on, it's hard to see the future, it's hard to see what's next. So I think. We're seeing this increase in poor mental health for many reasons. And I'm not smart enough or clever enough to give you all the scientific reasons. But from speaking to young people and from speaking to youth workers, I think it's this understanding that young people aren't sure where the hope is or aren't aren't sure where the certainty is. And that in itself is a heartbreaking place to be.
0: Well, yeah, I think you're right. I'd love to, I don't want being to interrupt, but I think almost before we then come on to go, so what are we doing about it? I think what's Konsugi offering? The first response needs to be to allow that to, to sink in, particularly for our churches because, I mean, adults are struggling, but I think what's needed is that adults recognise the particular pressures that a generation are facing that no generation in history has faced. You may say generations in history have experienced trauma, sure, but on their smartphones in their pockets in their bedrooms 24 7 they've not no no one's experienced that no. it's, and no. the first response should be one of lament sadness yeah. broken heartedness for the and concern for the plight of young people rather than a quick step to come on here's what you should do fix it just sort this out i'll just switch off your phones then or just don't give them screen time i think it's it's not as straightforward as that look at your heart break first
1: yeah, your your heart needs to break, and this the understanding. Our young people are more aware of all what's going on in the meat than other generations were ever. Like even with the war in Ukraine, our young and even with COVID, our young people had a death count on their phones every single day for a year and a half. 100 people died due to COVID. They were faced with mortality at a closer rate than any generation since World War II. That's an impact. Today, oh, today 10,000 people have died. Tomorrow, 12,000 people have died. That is a massive impact, just knowing that and being faced with that mortality. So yeah, um, we need to mourn. We need to go, this is really hard. But I think what we're good at doing is sometimes doing that. And sometimes what we're not as good at doing is going, what can I do? it feels so hopeless. It feels like, what difference can I make? What difference can I do? And actually, there's so much difference you can do as an individual. What young people need, more than anything else, is a safe space for them to process. And that's really what I'm asking churches to do, is please create a safe space for your young people to process what's going on and be equipped to look after their own mental health. And we we have material to help you guys do that. If you'd prefer to go and create a safe space and do nothing with kunsugi you're still doing a great job. Because creating a, creating a safe space is what we need to be doing to allow young people to process. And what does that mean? Creating a safe space is allowing young people to breathe, allowing young people to be in a place where there is no judgment, where really, it isn't always trying to fix. Often at church, we want to fix people. Actually, people want to be heard. and want to process what's going on. There's this thing called holding space for someone, what counsellors use. Holding space for someone is being physically, mentally and emotionally present for someone whilst they feel, in, feel their feelings. The key part of holding space is withholding judgment and trying to fix them. I know if a young person comes to me crying, going, yeah, oh, this happened. I instinctively want to go right. This is what we're going to do. Here's the game plan. No, I want to go. They want me to go. Oh, that was hard. I'm sorry. That must really hard. And then you make a game plan. But we need to allow time for them to process. Go. Oh, this has been hard. So I would love you to work out how can you guys create safe spaces for young people to process. So what we've done is we've written a six-week course. What you guys can do with young people is written through six. It's written through seven different learning styles. Each learning style has about two to three, four even activities you can do. So we train group leaders up. It's a couple of hours training online. We give you one hundred percent of the material, and you're going to use twenty to thirty percent of it because you completely tailor it to your audience and your young people. Very much down to you of how you want to do it. It's not us going here's a one size fits all approach. It's us going, you as youth workers, you as parents, you as teachers, you as people, you know what your local young people need because your journey with them. I know what young people need in Ipswich. I haven't a clue what they need in Newcastle. I can give you a good a guesstimate of what young people need over the UK, but in a very hands-on approach. You need people on the ground. And that's what our material tries to do is just equip the people on the ground with a load of good stuff and go run with what you want want to run with and leave what doesn't work for you.
0: Mm, that's really good, Joel. Thank you so much. Uh, what's the website and how can people find out more if they're if they're motivated to do that?
1: Of course, you can go to kintsugihope.com. That is K-I-N-T-S-U-G-I hope.com.
0: And for those uh, church leaders and people in churches that have young people going to New Day, uh, I mentioned at the start, I'm really excited that you're going to be there speaking in a couple of sessions and seminars both to young people and also in a session equipping youth leaders. So people should get booked into New Day if they haven't done already and come and meet you personally. I mean, it's just down the road from you as a Ipswich boy.
1: Yeah, it's great. I'm coming into enemy territory before Jesus. I know, I was going to say, Ooh.
0: Ipswich and Norwich are, are arch enemies, aren't they, and rivals. So... I might have to out you and tell everyone you're an Ipswich fan in you know broad daylight. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Joel Harris. There's so much in there that I found incredibly helpful and really worth going back over. I would really want to encourage you to check out the Kintsugi Hope website and more information about the course that Joel mentioned there. It sounds like a fantastic opportunity and a great way that we as churches can not only support our young people, but beyond that as well, get involved in the community. I love how the founder of the Kansugi Hope Charity referenced what they're doing and offering something akin to Slimming World that people are familiar with. Go to something for a six-week course, do a mental health or a well-being checkup, and get supported, get connected to people in your life. What a great idea. Go on their website, find out more. All of the details about things that Joel talked about can be found in the description to today's episode, so do make sure you check that out. Also, I mentioned in my conversation with Joel a book that I was reading about the performative lifestyle and how we're to find and seek out hiddenness in Christ. That's a book called The Secret Place of Thunder. Again, the description and information about that book you'll find in the episode notes. For now, that's it. We're done. God bless you. I hope you have a good rest of your day. I hope you've got some good tools to be equipped to look after your mental health and uh, hopefully we'll see some of you at New Day, those of you who are there. For now, that's it. Stay well and keep pursuing Jesus with everything you have. God bless. Goodbye.